Welcome to this episode of Living Legends. I'm your host, John Reitman, and our guest is George Thompson of Sandhills Community College in Pinehurst, North Carolina. We'll just jump right in today. George, thanks for being with us. Can you give our listeners a brief snapshot of your long and storied career? It's pretty pretty extensive, uh, but I can give you a snapshot. I was I was raised up in the Berkshire County area in western Massachusetts, and there's summer resort for a lot of people from Boston or New York City. So I was able to caddy at 10 or 11 years of age, and I started started caddying there at Pittsfield Country Club, which is a Donald Ross course. And um, back in those days, I guess it was 1949 or 1950, going going way back. I just turned 80 a couple of months ago, so I can go back quite a few years. But uh, it was uh, 65 cents for a nine-hole single and a dollar 20 for single 18 and 240 for double 18 and if you got quarter tip you were doing pretty good so if you know if you made six dollars on a 36 hole loop with two bags you had a pretty good day but it was uh, it was interesting i learned the game of golf and learned a little bit about people and and, then the game itself and caddy for some interesting people but in those days they had pro greenskeepers and and uh, got to know that Greenskeeper, and I got to know the pro very well. And I, I even used to travel a little bit with the pro when I got older, and kind of worked my way up through the ranks when I was thirteen or fourteen or fifteen. And then I, I started working on the golf course in the summer in the supermarkets in the winter time. And when I graduated from high school, I went in the navy, and then came out of the navy and went to the University of Mass. Stockbridge School of Agriculture, which turned out an awful lot of superintendents back in their days. It was the oldest uh, turf school in the country at that time. I think it went back to 1929. Professor Dickinson called it the winter school for turf managers back in those days. And then it went to a a two-year school. And then obviously a four-year agronomy was always in track. But, But I think Dr. Troll was there in the 50s and 60s and 70s. He would put people out all over the country because uh, Massachusetts and New England was getting pretty pretty full of uh, graduates. So he'd say, get your butts out of Massachusetts, go somewhere else and work. And so by his leading and his uh, interest in us getting out, a lot of us decided to go somewhere else and I was fortunate to go to Chicago and work at Ravislow Country Club for Roy Nelson in an internship for five months. And Roy was vice president of GCSAA in those days, so he he helped me helped my career. He's the first really professional person that I'd ever worked for, professional superintendent. So I had a good internship with him, and he uh, his name meant a lot on a resume for sure since he became president of GCSA, and I think it was 1963 or 1964, and then I went back and finished up at Stockbridge, and I was able to get an assistant job in the D.C. area, Columbia Country Club, which was one of the older established uh, country clubs around D.C. in 1907, and uh, I worked for a consultant there by the name of Dick Watson, and I year and a half later I became superintendent 
and I stayed there for uh, almost 20 years. It was a great club, great traditions, wonderful members. Our pro was Freddie McLeod, who was the oldest living U.S. Open champion at that time. He had uh, he used to lead off Augusta back in the mid '60s. He was one of the official starters at Augusta. Came over from Scotland and stayed over 50 years at Columbia Country Club. It was a great place. They really appreciated their help and they took good care of their their staff and. Uh, I think I was the youngest superintendent or youngest, probably the youngest employee when they hired me in 1963. The pro had been there 40 or 50 years, the starter about 50 years. They had a couple of assistant pros that were there 35 years. They had three locker room attendants that had 150 years service and uh, club managers with 20 or 30 years. So it was a great place for a, for a career. And I was pretty happy there, but I knew that, you know, I'd have to go somewhere else if I wanted to support my kids and get my kids into college. So the D.C. area was getting a little congested and more traffic and harder and harder, and harder to get around. And I'm Alan McCurrick, who was a, the first tour agronomist on the tour, was a friend of mine. He called me up in 19... 19- 82, and he says, there's a job down here in the Carolinas that you need to check out. He said, it's God's country down here in Pinehurst. You really need to take a look at it. He says, I know you're happy at Columbia, but you better take a look at this one. So I sent a resume out, and I got an interview, and long story short, I was hired in February of 82, and uh, had a great career here. Buck Adams was a Golf professional, uh, lots of good uh, improvements we were able to make to the golf course. I had a 36-hole course on 2,000-acre property, and I had come off of 150 acres in the Maryland suburbs, so it was quite different for me, quite an adjustment. And uh, I did pretty well. I hired Mike Claffey, who was an assistant of mine in, in Maryland, and he was a superintendent at a club that was on COD, and he was anxious to get out of there, so I needed someone that I could trust that was loyal and uh, hired him as my assistant. And Mike stayed with me for five years. He said, I'll stay with you for five years. And I said, good, between you and I, we can help you know improve this facility and do pretty well here. Buck Adams was the pro, and Buck was well thought of in the Carolinas. He was on the Carolinas Hall of Fame. Uh, Bill Strasbaugh was my pro in Maryland, and Bill was very well thought of in the professional ranks. They even had a, a uh, award name for him every year. So I was fortunate to work with some very good professionals, very good club managers, very good Green Committee Chairman, very good club presidents, and uh, yeah, I had a good career. I led 19 years at Columbia, 19 years at CCNC, and uh, I started teaching in turf, two-year turf school at Sand Hills Community College with Mike Ventola in 2001, and I've been over there ever since, so I'm 
I'm still teaching a few courses as an adjunct professor and uh, still consulting a little bit and still enjoying myself. So, long story short, I guess. Yeah, how did you get into the teaching aspect of the business? I had always enjoyed that. I developed a lot of assistants and interns, and I was able to help their careers. And uh, when I was at CCNC, they would ask me to come in as a guest speaker and present budgets or, you know, talk about other subjects. And when I was at Maryland, uh, Dr. Hawes ran the two-year program there, and he, he went on a sabbatical one year, so I was able to take his uh, his uh, course for a semester. So I had a little bit of experience doing that, and I enjoyed it. And I felt like I could give give him a different perspective since I didn't come from academia. I could tell the students that, you know, I've done this, and this is, works for me, and this this is the way I would do things. And if you do A, B, and C, it might not work, but if you do, it, if you do D, this will probably work for you. And I give them things that I know they have to have in college. So... I think it's been pretty well. Mike Ventola, who runs the program, he gives him the science, and I give him a lot of the practical information. And I like the way the course is, is structured. It's uh, They all work mornings in the Pinehurst area, on the Pinehurst area clubs, and they uh, we start our classes after lunch, and sometimes we'll run till 4 or 5 in the evening. And then the second year, they go on an internship January, February, and March, and they usually try to get them in Florida or Arizona or, you know, some of the warmer climates, and the benefit for us is that we get to visit them on the job, so that's that's a, that's a plus for us and the students, but I enjoy it, and I think I, I'm on my back nine someplace, but I, I probably got a little more gas left in the tank. Let's go back to your days under Dr. Troll, and you mentioned how he would tell students to get out of the New England area. You have students to whom you give the same kind of advice. How does that help prepare them, and how does being able to give them that breadth of experience help you sell the program to prospective students? Um, I think it's important for them to to build their resume and work in different areas and work on different grasses. And we try to impress that upon them if they work with past Balaam greens or they can work with the tip dwarf or ultra dwarf greens or bent grass greens or bent grass fairways or soja fairways in different climates. We try to encourage them to, you know, work around in different places and not be too interested in, you know, the income that you make, but try to get a good mentor and uh, someone to take an interest in your career, either an assistant or a former student or a or a uh, superintendent that can help you and someone that has a good internship program. So there's, there's plenty of internship opportunities and in some of the places we go to are really have good programs for them. Desert Mountain would be a good example and Gasparilla Island down in Florida is another good example. So they're two of the places we really like to put our students. People that go to Florida, 
seem to do better because there's so many golf courses in Florida. They seem to be able to move up their career a little quicker than they would in some other area. Take us back to your early days. When was that moment when you decided that career as a superintendent was something you wanted to pursue? I think it was probably with Roy Nelson. Um, At the time, I was happy mowing grass and mowing greens and whatever. But uh, Roy was much more professional, and he was national board member, and he took me to Toastmasters, and he'd bring me to superintendent meetings. And I, I really enjoyed going out with him and playing golf with him and meeting the other superintendents at that time around Chicago. And at that time, I knew it was a professional organization or it, it was uh, something that really instilled my desire to become a superintendent. The level of professionalism required to do the job now, did you ever foresee it transforming from what it was then in those early days to what it is now? No, I didn't. I didn't really see that. Uh, early on, I didn't notice that, but I noticed that through the years, how much more professional you had to be, how much public relations was important, and how much communications has been important. And, and the agronomy is always important, but not not all-inclusive. You know, it's not 80 or 90 percent of your job. It's probably 30 to 40 percent of your job. PR and uh, uh, communications is definitely at the top top of our qualifications, I would think. When did you first really notice that change, that shift in the profession? I don't know. It's kind of evolved over the years, but when I look at GCSA website or, or your website and I see the uh, the blogs that are on there and the, and the way that superintendents are presenting themselves and how they're presenting themselves at conferences and field days and meetings. It's uh, it's kind of evolved over the years. I don't know if there was a, a light that went on and said, you know, this is where it's really changing. I think it changed gradually over the years. We're going to take a quick break for a brief message from our sponsors. Pinpoint Fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take-all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. We're back on Living Legends with George Thompson. When you're teaching students today, what do you impress upon them that are some of the more serious career challenges they're going to face in their future? I try to keep a positive spin on it. I know there's some issues where you have committees that really you don't have good relationships with, or you have green chairmen that are trying to build monuments to themselves. But I try to 
talk about the green chairman that really helped my career and the ones that that uh, helped me out and were great for the club and you know great for the staff and for myself and um, I also tell them to uh, you and the golf professional need to get along and if you you and the golf professional don't get along then your club's not going to be as successful you really need to be a team player and make sure you and the golf professional are are on the same page and you get it by the pro shop let them know what's going on on the course every day and you know, keep those lines open. It's very important for you and the golf professional to be in unison with each other. If we go back to those days at Columbia and taking into account the loyalty that the club showed toward its employees, how did that help you become a better superintendent because you knew that you knew you had a little bit of leeway as far as being able to experiment, maybe make some mistakes and learn from those mistakes and not always be looking over your shoulder. Right. Yeah. I appreciated that at Columbia because that was the first, first superintendent job I had and I was very young and I had made some mistakes, especially as far as personnel management I, I was pretty hard on my employees. I think I, I made some mistakes along that line. As a matter of fact, I gave a talk on all the mistakes I made in my career, and that was one of them. I, I could have been a little more tolerant of my employees. <clears throat> excuse me. And then uh, talked to them and impressed upon them the fact that you know this is what I expect out of you, instead of assuming you know this is what what they should be doing, instead of talking to them and telling them exactly what I wanted from them. So I'd, I'd let some people go that had 30 years service and uh, for for a few things that I probably could have cleared up quickly if I'd sat down and talked to them. So I, that was a learning curve for me. Man, management is something you kind of acquire over time. It's not something that can be taught in the classroom. Back to your days in the Navy, how old were you when you went in, how long were you in, and what kind of life lessons did that experience provide that maybe helped you along the way? I was in the reserves when I was in high school, so I went in 1960 for two years in the Navy. I had two or three years of reserves prior to that, so I was only able to serve two years, which was Enough, you know. I I was on two destroyers, one out of Newport and one out of Norfolk, Virginia, and I was a radar technician, and I stood a lot of watches, and I saw a lot of the world. Some of it for only 12 hours, but it was a good discipline for me. I needed some discipline at that time. My dad had passed away when I was 14, and I was, you know, I needed some discipline. And uh, the military gave it to me, and I also was able to see a lot of the world and and uh, get get to uh, enjoy. I liked the Navy, but I'd, I couldn't make it a career. I didn't think I'd ever be able to have a marriage that would ever sustain itself if you're at sea for eight or ten months a year. And I didn't have any good role models. Some of the officers were 
pretty squared away. <laughs> but some of the enlisted men were lacking a little bit as far as the peers. But uh, it was a good experience, and I'm, I'm glad that I did that. Your career, whether it be as a student, superintendent, or now an instructor, has spanned several decades and some vast changes in the way superintendents maintain turf grass. Can you quantify how the business of being a golf course superintendent has changed? Well, I can remember some of the early greenskeepers back in the 50s and 60s. You know, they were bib overalls or work clothes, or some of them would wear a little cap and a white shirt and a tie and and uh, they were making five or six thousand dollars a year and uh, some of them had a house on the property and some of them had a lifetime job as long as they were happy there and the the courses were in similar condition you know if you had a bad year and everybody else had a bad year you kept the job if, if you had a bad year and the ones around you had a good year then you'd you weren't as successful keeping a job, but I think there was more loyalty then. And uh, as long as you tried your best and you were, you know, honest and and uh, diligent to your duties at the club, um, we were mowing greens in Granite Country Club and Nine Hole Donna Ross Course at Lee Mass at uh, quarter inch, and uh, it even jack them up to. Uh, Five eighths, maybe in the summertime. And uh, when I went to Columbia, we were three sixteenths back in uh, '63, '64, and I dropped them to seven thirty seconds one year. And everybody wanted to play my greens because they're the quickest greens in D.C. area. And uh, since then, they've been coming down to two hundred and fifty. 125, you know, 195, 85. So now I think they're going to have to put razor blades on the bed knife. You know, they're being clipped so short. But, but uh, Dr. Deutsch at Penn State, he had those eighth of an inch grasses for quite a few years in his plots, and he didn't even think people would be using them. He didn't think there'd be any need for them. And then when the pressure got on to have quicker and quicker greens and you know, you release the A's and the G's and some of those very dwarf putting green grasses. So it's changed a lot. I mean, uh, heck, we'd even mow greens every other day sometimes. And uh, rake bunkers once a week, throw a rake out there. If, if you had footprints in the bunkers, you know, rake them yourself. But now the Bunkers are being maintained. I mean, you're putting water on the bunker slope so that you don't get any plug lies. You're you're keeping the fairway bunkers firm and the greens bunkers soft, and you're you're uh, manicuring things, and everything's the same. Stint meter reading, and, you know. You talked. I remember Pete Dye talked at a conference one time. He said, "You guys are spoiling all these golfers." He said. Everything's the same. You're all putting 10 or 11 feet on the stim meter. You're, you're rolling. You're double cutting. You're, you got all these people spoiled. <clears throat> he said back in the days when when greens were didn't even have a stim meter, he said some of the greens were probably rolling four feet, and some of them might have been rolling eight feet, and they had grain in them, and you had to get out and read a green in those days. He said 
Nowadays, your putting strokes only about 18 inches, and uh, you still have to read them, but uh, not like it used to be. Lots of changes. We used to go out and move sprinkler heads at night, you know, night water and irrigation. We'd have uh, heads that were moving every 45 minutes or every hour that were covering 180 feet. Now that there's thousand heads on the golf course, you know, they're all valve and head or they're all programmed separately. It's, it's a, it's a different world out there. We're mowing fairways with zoysia fairways at three eighths of an inch or we're coloring fairways with dye or we're, we're, uh, greens are 10, 11 feet. It's, it's a different world, but it's it's a, def, a lot of manicuring that never went down in those days. I mean, leaves used to just fall up there in western Massachusetts. And we'd wait until they all came down, and then we'd rake them all up. And you had the ball roll. The, the leaf roll rule was in effect. But if you kept your job, if you kept your greens, you kept your job. If It didn't really matter what the rest of the place looked like. But you better be on your toes today. You might have a $2 million budget, but you better not have a bad year. Not too much security. I think it may be changing a little bit, but it's still a not very secure job. You really need to have a good, solid contract. What do you tell kids in regard to that? How do you help prepare them for what the industry's like today? Not necessarily from an agronomic perspective, but from a communications perspective and what you need to be prepared for when it comes to dealing with committees and chairmen and owners and GMs and meeting some of those expectations that have come to define the industry now. I think we we try to tell them that difference between a private club, a semi-private, a public, or a resort course, and, you know, don't be afraid to apply for a job in a municipality or a, or a, a city or a town or county that might own golf courses, because you might have better security there, better plans, better health plans, better pension plans, and you may not be as subject to a termination as you would be at a private club where they expect everything to be completely uh, prestigious all the time. But, uh, you know, they're probably going to make the money at a private club, and if that's what they want, then, you know, just trying to tell them that it's, you know, high expectations, and if if they want to spend $2 million a year, it's their money, let them do it and try to give them their money's worth it. If they're spending 300000 then you're not going to do as much and you may not have as much pressure. But it's, uh, it's a matter of getting them in some experience in different facilities and then they can kind of decide which way they want to go. There's some clubs where you can be fairly friendly with the members and play golf with them and socialize with them and there's other clubs where you just take, keep it on a very professional basis and you know, don't get involved with their different cliques and different uh, segments of members that may not even like each other. Just stay neutral and stay positive and stay stay professional and don't 
don't get into little situations where some member comes up to you and said, this is kind of con- controversial, but just between you and me, uh, what do you think of, say, overseeding or something like that? And I just say, uh, you know, we'll just have to discuss that at the committee meeting. I'm not, between you and me, in my mind, never works because it usually gets back to the grill room. And if it's something okay. controversial, it's it's never between you and me. It's between me and the rest of the boys that I hang out with. So it's hard to to uh, not become uh, involved with people that you really like. You know, it's at a private club, there's a lot of people that I would rather play golf with and socialize with them, but I always try to keep it professional and, you know, not hang around the bar, not not hang around the dining room, just get out of there and go somewhere else and show up for the member guest banquets or some of the other club affairs, but not not overdo it, you know, not be, be happy that you're included in the membership functions, but not not go overboard with it. George, thanks a lot for your time today. We appreciate it. We enjoyed talking to you. Anytime, John. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to me.